0: You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started.
1: Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and a volunteer for LLS, and I want to thank all of you for joining us for this episode. Today, we'll be joined by Susan McCall, who's a clinical trials nurse practitioner with a lymphoma service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, New York. Susan, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: what I really would like to focus on today is indolent lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and really just sort of explore not only the medicine uh, and some of the new medical advances and, and how they've impacted patients, but also to explore the patient's journey, you know, from hearing this news to what happens next. And let me ask you about that. You know, people are coming, they may have just had a lymph node biopsy, and what is that? First experience like for patients as they come to a cancer center and, and hear this news
2: so it's a it's a really great question, and I usually say that there's two categories um, into which patients fall. The first category is that of coming into the consultation, having done all of their own research, um, a lot of that has been googling, but you know reviewing as many journals and, and articles on the internet or talking with physician colleagues that they might know in their personal circles. And then they're already armed, and they come with all of these questions, and they're prepared to hear all of the information. And then the second group of patients that I often get to meet, um, which is really the majority, is patients that have little to no knowledge and don't even have a list of questions because they have literally been thrust into this situation where they have a new diagnosis and they have not received any treatment planning, education, anything at all which is where I I like to swoop in and sort of take my place um, in conjunction with the oncologist to go over a lot of that for them.
1: So, you know, those two groups of patients, which I can picture, how's the experience different with with both groups? Let's say, you know, for for those patients and, and for you as a nurse practitioner and for the medical team.
2: I would say that the latter group, the patients that don't have any exposure or have been educated on the topic or their disease, usually come with a little bit more anxiety and fear and are more or less a bit more emotional, which is very understandable. That's not to say that the former group isn't. I see my fair range of emotions in those patients as well. And, you know, in their defense, coming in with a new diagnosis, whether you're marginally prepared, a lot prepared, or not prepared at all, to hear the information that's about to be received, it really kind of spans the entire patient's experience. And I would be amiss not to acknowledge that there is some emotional consoling and really sympathizing with the patient at those encounters, because it's really overwhelming for majority of people. I do feel very strongly that acknowledging those feelings and, and then really trying to establish the relationship with the patient is my primary priority because that's ultimately the foundation from where that trusting professional relationship is going to begin.
1: So. Years ago, there was in fact this goes back to the 1980s. There was a study by some a fellow named John Fetting at Johns Hopkins about breast cancer consultations, and he basically uh, showed with a woman named Laura Simonov that patients leave with a memory of about five percent of what was said. And let me just ask you, even without having done an official study, but you know, what's your gut estimate in terms of today, which is you know almost twenty twenty, and talking about non Hodgkin's lymphoma. How much do patients retain and understand?
2: Yeah, so it's so interesting because we talk about this amongst ourselves all of the time and normally when we see a patient for the very first time, usually and thankfully the patient is with a family member or a friend who can be a second set of ears which we always recommend, but really kind of delving into into the nuances of a treatment plan and and really going through a lot of education is unfortunately can be lost on the patient in that first visit, and I agree with that statistic wholeheartedly. It's really the second visit where we have an opportunity to to really hone the education that we need to provide for the patient, as well as is give any other information that they may need to know about, and a lot of that also includes resources that are available at the institution. Just last week, I had a patient that I saw for the second time who said, you know what, Susan, I apologize. The first time that I met you, I couldn't even remember your name. And today I felt more prepared and I I had like a little bit of time for the diagnosis to kind of percolate, if you will. And I'm ready to receive whatever you've got to throw at me. And I said, well, I'm not going to throw anything at you, but I will give you the information.
1: But it's a good point. I think during the first session, often we as oncologists and professionals have, have a lot to say, and there's a lot of data exchange. And I think you're right. On a second visit, it's you know you really get to see someone's personality, who they are. This patient's really not coming to the situation naive in many ways, naive meaning medically naive. Most people, by the time they've come to us, have had other experiences and family members who've been sick and fears and worries that come from other experiences. Experiences that they bring to the consultation. And, and I think you're right, a second, third, fourth visit are really a chance to get to know people better as very rich individuals often.
2: Yes, absolutely. And that's actually really the pleasure of my job is getting to know those people as individuals and sort of learning how they perceive their diagnosis and really engaging with them along their treatment trajectory because you know we have to be supportive of them and not only to treat them, but be supportive of them. So getting to know them is the fun part.
1: So non hodgkins lymphoma, indolent lymphoma, I think one of the most interesting things as a clinician is meeting with a patient, telling them that they have a disease, a cancer, and then saying, I don't think we should do anything about it. So what have you observed? How do people react to that?
2: Yeah, so it's so interesting because sometimes when patients come with some information already in hand, knowing that maybe that will be the recommendation, they're a little bit more prepared to say, you know what? We acknowledge that you have this diagnosis, and we're actually going to do active surveillance is what we like to call it, where we're not going to be giving you any treatment, but we're going to keep a very close eye on you, and they're a little bit more understanding of what that means. Other patients, however, can sometimes have really the opposite reaction, where they then end up spiraling down into this little fearful set of feelings and and really express how am i supposed to live with this malignancy i can't live without it being treated and that's where additional education is necessary to really provide the patient with information that yes this is this is a diagnosis of a cancer But in reality, you're sort of living symbiotically with it right now. It's not causing you any harm. It's not hurting you. Maybe your blood counts are okay. And really reminding the patient that all of that is a very, very good thing. And there's even a small subset of patients with these diagnoses that don't need to be treated for the entirety of their lives. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes some reinforcement, and usually I'll use either the second visit if that wasn't the second visit, and the third visit and the fourth visit to to gently remind the patient and the family members about that so that they can kind of wrap their head around it, if you will, because it it can be a hard pill to swallow.
1: The question that sometimes people ask, and and I find that uh, sometimes doesn't mean a lot, it means just occasionally, but patients may say, is this curable? How do you respond in your team?
2: Yeah, so that's a difficult question, and I would say that we talk about that in 99.9% of our initial consultations, because patients really do need to understand that a lot of these indolent lymphomas truly are incurable, which kind of lends itself to description of more what a chronic disease course looks like. That, too, can be a bit overwhelming and shell-shocking for a patient to have a diagnosis knowing that they are going to have it for the rest of their lives. I agree with you that there are some patients that may be cured that um, go into remission where they have no evidence of disease and it never recurs for the rest of their lives, but that's not the bulk of patients that I tend to see. I tend to see those that have a new diagnosis, maybe get some treatment or active surveillance and eventually get treatment, and then it becomes a little bit more of a chronic treatment plan after that in terms of describing the malignancy as curable or incurable again the gentle reminding and psychological reinforcement of what not having a curable disease really means it doesn't mean that one is going to be debilitated in a specific way while living with the disease although the treatments that we give can sometimes cause transient side effects sometimes even chronic side effects but for a majority of patients that despite the fact that they're having this incurable disease means that they will likely be able to live their lives to the fullest extent and have a good quality of life. And I think that's really what patients tend to be afraid of, is somehow the disease is going to impede their quality of life. And thankfully, you know, with a lot of the treatments that we have, especially some of the targeted agents, we can maintain that quality of life for them and really help them harness whatever their life goal may be. And For myself, that's really the most rewarding aspect is helping them not only have disease control, but also good quality of life. And I think that's what we're all shooting for.
1: Absolutely. How often do patients ask about life expectancy in a consultation? Do people talk, either clinicians or patients talk about, will I die from this?
2: Yeah, so it's a good question. And, you know, it's so funny because as I think about it, I... I'm not sure if we really throw out statistics as much as one might do in the setting of having an aggressive lymphoma. I think for some of these you know, chronic diseases, these indolent non-Hodgkin lymphomas, really the discussion is about how we're going to manage a treatment plan and what that's going to look like over the course of the next 1, 5, 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, and sort of approach it from that trajectory. Of course, acknowledging that The disease may respond in an unexpected way in some situations, in which case we have to regroup. For a majority of patients, we usually do acknowledge that they are anticipated to live probably, you know, a solid 20 years, especially now with some of the treatments that we have with this diagnosis, maybe even longer, possibly shorter. But for a majority of these patients, they're often not succumbing to this disease, they die of something else.
1: What do you see as the role of the nurse and the nurse practitioner in managing patients with indolent lymphoma as a chronic disease?
2: For those patients that are on active surveillance and may have not yet received treatment or those in remission who've already had treatment and we're simply monitoring them, for a lot of those patients, it's psychological support. And as a nurse and a practitioner, that's sort of where I like to specialize and utilize my relationship with the patient to be able to provide that. A lot of those patients can be kind of anxious and sort of waiting for, well, when am I going to get the news where I'm going to need treatment or if I'm going to need more treatment? And and for a lot of patients, that can be very anxiety-inducing. And I try to console them to the best of my ability and be there for them, but also utilize some of my resources, whether it be social work, psychiatry, counseling, support groups to really bring in the extra layer of care that we have to provide for some of these patients.
1: Uh Sloan Kettering and and a lot of the major cancer centers, and also in community settings as well, there are good support services outside of your center. What else should patients look for in terms of getting support?
2: Yeah, so the biggest hope that I have for all of my patients is that they do have a very, very close-knit support circle at home or very near to it, family members, close friends, for additional resources, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is a great example where there are web-based groups for patients to have really more of like an official support group. You know, the the best way to, to get some of that support, I think, is through having face-to-face meetings, but I acknowledge that that's not possible for everybody. And having the social platform and the web-based platform to be able to do that is really monumental. If it's not the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society that's really providing that support for patients, You know, going outside of there and referring patients to other organizations or centers that may have support groups like that. And it could even just be a general chronic disease support group. It doesn't have to be a lymphoma support group. It's ideal if it's lymphoma, there's more in common, but acknowledging that there's really quite a breadth of places where patients can get some of that support.
1: Now, one of the things I've been very grateful for nurse practitioners I have worked with is helping patients with many of the toxicities of treatment. And so let me ask you about your role in that, and I want to ask you as a follow-up, what are some of the things you've seen, especially in this age of new therapies, toxicities that you or all of us may not have expected before, and how's that affected you as a clinician?
2: Yeah, so it's been really interesting working in lymphoma in the last 10 years or so, because we've seen really this evolution in the types of treatments that we have available for some of our patients. and. We still give a lot of chemoimmunotherapy to patients, but it's really the targeted therapy where we're sort of still learning what some of the side effects can be. And, you know, as a nurse practitioner, one of my primary responsibilities is to provide education to patients and family members what those toxicities are and what they can expect in terms of relative frequency and how we're going to manage that. So that's, that's really the piece that I like to focus on after the oncologist has set forth a treatment plan. With a lot of our chemotherapy regimens, you know, the most common side effect is really the myelosuppression and anticipating that patients are going to be neutropenic, they might need some growth factor support, risk of infection, and really reminding patients what that means and how they might have to adapt sort of their day-to-day lives to really mitigate against that risk of infection.
1: It's very hard, I think, for patients to anticipate the change in their lifestyle uh, while on treatment. And so let me ask this as a very general kind of question for patients with indolent lymphoma who are receiving treatment and not on watch and wait anymore they're being treated lifestyle quality of life if someone again were to a patient were to ask you would you say mildly changed, moderately changed, severely changed dramatically changed? how big a change should people expect in sort of their quality of life
2: So I would say that a majority of the treatments that we administer overall do not impact the quality of life for the patient. However, The chemoimmunotherapies that we give, you know, certain regimens like rituximab with CHOP chemotherapy oftentimes come with some transient changes, specifically fatigue, really this heightened awareness of infection, maybe some gastrointestinal side effects, intermittent nausea or vomiting, which can impact the quality of life. But since that treatment is really for a defined period of time, usually between 12-18 weeks, It really becomes like an acute toxicity management period. And then after that, the quality of life of the patient really almost 100% of the time returns to baseline with a few outliers. I tend to worry about toxicities that happen while patients are on treatment that can be acutely debilitating for which there needs to be a little bit more of a long-term rehabilitation Some of the targeted therapies is a little bit different because those agents are often oral agents that are taken by mouth every day can have a side effect profile of their own, oftentimes of the gastrointestinal or dermatologic variety that will essentially persist for the duration of therapy. And for a lot of these agents that are indefinite therapy, that means that we have to observe the patient's quality of life for that whole time since they're on active treatment. In my personal experience, for example, last week I saw a gentleman with mantle cell lymphoma who is taking abrutinib. He's having a bit of diarrhea related to the abrutinib, which is not an uncommon toxicity. A couple bowel movements every day. It's not impacting his quality of life, but he did ask me, is this going to go away? And that was a really difficult question for me to answer because in truth I'm not anticipating that it's going to completely resolve while he is on therapy. Instead, I was trying to coach him on how we can adapt and how he can manage his lifestyle so that we can continue the medication without needing to stop it while treating the diarrhea at the same time. Again, not hugely impacting his quality of life, but acknowledging that that there was a quality of life component associated with it. And that's sort of my approach with a lot of these targeted agents is how can we manage the toxicity while we're at the same time managing the disease so that we can maintain that quality of life.
1: You no, know, it's an, a very interesting juxtaposition that you've just laid out because a lot of our older therapies were short term, again, 12 to 16 weeks in a defined period of time and defined toxicity. And this is different because these potentially are drugs people would be on for months, years, decades, and, and a lifetime.
2: Right, yeah, and that's also an educational opportunity for myself as well, is letting patients know, okay, this is a defined course of treatment, this is what I expect in this period of time. And then for patients that are on these targeted therapies for an indefinite period of time, this is my expectation. And oftentimes that expectation is different. For patients that have had both, it's helping them change their frame of mind to understand, okay, what I experienced with Mem CHOP you know, six years ago is a lot different than what I'm experiencing now on this targeted therapy.
1: Yeah. Well, let me ask you, in the setting of people being on treatment for, again, long periods of time, what impact have you seen? What feedback do patients give you about, about the other aspects of their life, how they're changed, family, a significant other, being a parent, working, things like that?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question, Ken, and I I appreciate you asking that because what happens to the patient is only part of it, and what happens to the family unit, and that patient's whole circle is sort of the extra layer of complexity, And, and oftentimes I have patients that might be in their 30s or even younger than that. It's a bit more unusual as these diseases tend to afflict patients in their 6th, 7th decades of life. But for some of my younger patients, a lot of them are getting married and wanting to have children, establishing these like fundamental relationships in their life. And it can be really difficult, especially from a fertility perspective, for example. Having a 35-year-old patient receiving Rituxan and CHOP chemotherapy is a lot different than a 65-year-old patient getting single-agent abrutinib in terms of potential family planning. And at that first or even second encounter with the patient, as I'm getting to know them, I'm assessing their life plans and really what their expectations are and and, you know, thankfully, patients are really upfront about that. Like, hey, Susan, listen, I'm getting married in October. I had a patient a couple of weeks ago tell me my wedding is October 19th and I need to be there. How can you help me get there and help me feel as best as I can feel so that we can do that? And, and in truth, we ended up making arrangements to his treatment plan so that he could feel really well at that period of time. And that's that's what we have to do that's what it's all about. And being forthcoming with patients as well as inviting them to be forthcoming with us about what they want so we can meet and have common goals.
1: Susan, for patients with uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, what do you see as the role of uh, participating in clinical trials? And along those lines, what are patients' concerns as they sort of think about this as a possibility?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. And to speak to my bread and butter as a clinical trials nurse practitioner, I think that the biggest thing is really finding the right study for the right patient. And for a lot of patients, especially if they have a newly diagnosed disease, we may not have a clinical trial available for them. In other settings, especially in patients that have relapsed in refractory diseases that may have failed one plus lines of therapy, sometimes up to 10 lines of therapy, finding the clinical trial that might be available for them, it can be a little bit difficult. One is their access to studies. Is the patient at an academic institution that where they might be able to uh, enroll on a clinical trial? But then also, from the patient's perspective, what does that mean? And for a lot of patients, the perception of clinical trials, which has been stronger in historical standards, is becoming less commonplace now, is really being a guinea pig. And I really, really try to dissuade patients from thinking about it from that frame, because in reality, what we're doing is... We're learning more about the biology of these diseases, which means that we are coming up, we, I say we, the brilliant clinicians and the PhDs in the lab are coming up with these, these new therapies that target those specific mutations. And in the era where we're understanding the biology of that individual's disease, we can then understand, does this patient's disease have a specific mutation? Is there a therapy available on or even off of a clinical trial in which we can really target that mutation and treat the patient? So it's kind of evolved into this really exciting time for us where we have a plethora of potential treatment options available, both on and off clinical trials, and really how much have we learned from patients participating in previous clinical trials. So I always let patients know that that it is a potential treatment option for them. What it means to them logistically from an access and financial standpoint is very, very case-specific. But reminding patients that if maybe we have tried the three FDA-approved lines of therapy for their disease that clinical trials are available for them. And in a majority of cases, we can match a patient with a study. And sometimes it's not even at our institution, it's at, at other institutions around the United States or even in the tri-state area, because we happen to be located in New York. So really letting the patient know that it's not just us taking care of the patients, really a community of clinicians and oncologists and nurses. Well said. So let me
1: ask you about financial toxicity. That's something
2: that used to not be discussed
1: much and now is discussed a little bit more but what a patient's sharing with you
2: yeah so to not acknowledge the financial toxicity would be very negligent of us when we're doing that consultation with the patient and it's a really great question so, in this era of targeted therapies, especially as we learn about the biology of, of these diseases and we're constantly you know, using more and more of these targeted therapies, we are noticing that the cost of these treatments really can be quite a burden for patients. With some of these targeted therapies running somewhere above $10,000 a month, it's a very real subject. And. With every single patient, I do tell them as we're doing a treatment plan that might include one of these agents, this is the cost of the drug. Looking at the insurance that you have, this is what it's likely going to cost you every month. And for some patients, they're absolutely blown away. And for some patients, it can be an impossible feat. Maybe they're falling in a coverage gap with their insurance company or haven't met their deductible it becomes a new challenge for both of us, for the patient family and for us as well. And and for those patients, if we can essentially come up with a plan for financial planning, incorporating our patient financial services, social work, any tertiary resources, philanthropic groups, that sort of thing, to then say, okay, this is how we're able to help kind of map this out and manage this. It's very, very real. But also the second layer to that is education to the patient that. If you're having a financial issue and you're taking this medication, please let us know right away because I don't want you to have a gap in your treatment because you're not able to afford the medication. That's going to lead to more deleterious effects later on down the road.
1: No, absolutely. And I want to point that, again, LLS has some great resources. Really experienced people are available to try to help with some of that. It helps us out too as clinicians.
2: Yeah, and I do invite patients and I am often the one that tells them about these other resources with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and other philanthropic organizations out there because I usually have to fill out some paperwork for them, which is absolutely fine, but really let patients know that those resources exist because you tell them how much a drug is going to cost and then they don't really think about much else after that. It's a little bit of that initial shock kind of happening all over again. To readdress that, the point in your previous question about missed work opportunities, I would like to say that we've actually become really great at managing side effects for patients, specifically as it pertains to some of the older stereotypical side effects about having nausea and vomiting, especially with our chemotherapy, including regimens, because our medications to manage those side effects are really, really you know, phenomenal and work in a majority of patients. And patients do ask me, you know, should I take off work? What should I do about this? And for a majority of patients, we say you can stop working, but you might actually want to keep working because you might find yourself feeling relatively well that you're able to do that, acknowledging other situations as it pertains to patients, maybe having an acute illness of some sort or even an acute hospitalization relative to a toxicity that continuing to work through these treatments is possible in a majority of cases. And for a lot of patients, that actually relinquishes such a burden of fear because a lot of them might not be in a place where they can afford to stop working. They might be the primary provider for their family. So it's quite helpful for them to understand that and really you know, let us know, again, just to have that understanding of, of what the whole situation is with the patient.
1: So, uh, I think probably a last question is about cancer survivorship. There's obviously a lot of talk about end of treatment summaries and survivorship care plans. Patients who are being treated for a chronic disease, for an indolent lymphoma, are they cancer survivors? And what should we be providing to them to make the survivorship experience as good as possible?
2: Yeah, so it's so interesting because. My clinical experience is such that a majority of patients get referred when they're in remission. And they've been in remission for a specific period of time to meet our survivorship, nurse practitioners and physicians assistants. But in my personal opinion, even those patients that might have a bit more of a chronic disease and treatment trajectory, they're survivors too. And for a lot of those patients that have been living with their disease for 10 years, that's exactly what they are. They have survived it for 10 years. I think that we're sort of evolving into this new era where survivorship is becoming a really big deal. Formal referrals to a survivorship clinician, I often hold back on those for patients who are receiving active therapy, especially with targeted treatments, but I do strongly encourage patients to really, really speak with their primary care providers. And I do provide education in forms of written literature as well as educational sessions so that patients can understand that, you know, maybe the treatment that you received 10 years ago for your disease can have some long-lasting side effects. So, for example, cardiac toxicities with some of the anthracycline chemotherapies, I mean, that's very real. Like, these patients do need cardiology follow-up, and while they're on ibrutinib, for example, we still need to make sure that their heart's in order from the treatment we gave them a decade ago. So, it's things like that that I try to pay attention to, and as patients are living longer and taking this therapy for a longer period of time, it becomes an even more real issue. How do we monitor and follow up on those side effects from prior therapies?
1: So I have to say, this has been a really interesting discussion about a large number of patients who are facing interesting and and challenging problems. I've been talking with Susan McCall, who is a clinical trials nurse practitioner with the lymphoma service at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And Susan, I want to thank you. It's been a great discussion.
2: Thank you for inviting me. The pleasure was all mine. For
1: additional resources on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, please be sure to check out our website, www.lls.org forward slash NHL. And for a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, visit www.lls.org forward CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatment, financial, and other support resources. Again, this is Dr. Ken Miller from the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And thank you for listening, and we encourage you to listen to more podcasts. That will be coming on a regular basis
0: thanks for listening to treating blood cancers the lls podcast series for professionals we can be found on itunes and other podcatchers you can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts be sure to rate and review us on itunes keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org/ce let's keep the conversation going until next time